all the big companies I've worked at have tried to do big transformation projects, which have often been hard and failed. And I've failed delivering big transformation many times. And I'm realizing doing big transformation is not right. It's not the way to do it. You, you do it incremental and small. And I'm learning about that. that that's a big thing for me. Hi, I'm Beldit Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'm very pleased to welcome Richard Vasach, CEO of Travelex. In addition to describing how he sees the links between shareholders' purpose and culture, he discusses their different approach to transformation, which combines the speed and agility of a startup with the scale and impact of a global player. He also talks about how he ensures he personally stays on track with their strategy. Join me for a frank, pointed, and informative discussion. Well, Richard, welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. You're the still fairly new Chief Executive TravelX, a brand that I suspect many people know, but equally I suspect, like a lot of businesses, may have been through a few changes recently. Um, so I wonder, could you tell us a bit about yourself and also about TravelX, kind of where it is, what it's doing now, those sorts of things? Absolutely. Yeah. So I joined the business in the middle of June of last year. So I've been enrolled for just over six months. Prior to that, I've got a slightly eclectic career in that I'm an oil industry chemical engineer by training, did a little bit at Heathrow Airport running baggage and logistics, and then got into financial services, working across a variety of areas from big retail institutions like Lloyds Banking Group and Prudential in sort of leadership and change and roles. And I then joined a more smaller privately entrepreneurial held company called Octopus Investments, which has grown quite a lot in recent years with the launch of Octopus Energy. I was there at the time when Octopus Energy was instigated, but also we instigated a, a sort of a, a foray into building fintech businesses to start to diversify the Octopus Investments business. And I was leading the development of those fintech businesses. So Greg Jackson went and built Octopus Energy. I was trying to mimic that in financial services to lesser effect than Greg. Well, though maybe a tougher challenge. Yeah, but we built some interesting businesses, mm -hmm. looked at peer-to-peer -peer options, cash management platforms to make, give retail consumers more choice, wealth management, and, and it was a fantastic time. So it, the reason it was exciting was is having worked in big corporates, there's an opportunity to work in very entrepreneurial, privately held startups. And then I spent about 18 months during the pandemic, I moved to a company called Brickvest, which was a startup looking to create a commercial real estate lending platform backed by a big real estate asset manager called Patrizia. But as is the ways with lots of tech startups, you know, couldn't get that one away for a variety of reasons. And the opportunity came up to join Travelex. First of all, Travelex is a global FX player. It's known for being in lots of prime airports around the world. It's a business that lots of people see. So in terms of numbers, pre-pandemic, you know, it had 38 million transacting customers in over 20 countries around the world, in over a thousand stores. It has over 5,000 colleagues. It's the dominant player in airports and primary retail FX in the world. The business had quite a tough time from about 2019 onwards, 
It was bought out of private equity by a conglomerate called Finabler based in the Middle East, which had some tax fraud issues, which meant that the business had to be recapitalized as an independent business again by the bondholders. And then very close to that, it then suffered one of the high profile, first high profile ransomware attacks in 2020, which put the business under quite a lot of pressure. No customer data was ever leaked, but it operationally impacted the business. And then very quickly, the pandemic hit, which put the business into administration because there's no travel. So the business went to administration, the debtors recapitalized a new co, took the assets in that they wanted to keep. And the business has started to grow very, very effectively since the pandemic has lifted. Just announced our Q3 results recently. You know, we are looking to exceed you know, what we thought we were going to achieve. We're looking at around, you know, 25 million for the end of the year. And, you know, have aspirations to get the EBITDA back to 2019 levels very quickly next year. Building that off the back of recovering global travel around the world. Um, Sorry, Richard, just, you, you went through sort of some scalers, you know, of X number of employees and outlets and all of that. Is that still pretty much where you are? Or through the COVID thing, did that have to be wound down? Yeah, so the, the business, a lot of it was mothballed. Loads of people were put on furlough or were, you know, unfortunately, in other countries where there weren't furlough schemes made redundant. But as travels returned, we've had to recruit a lot of those colleagues back. We've got new colleagues coming in. So we're 5,000 colleagues around the world already. And the only region where we've just seen recently starting to open up again is China and Hong Kong and Japan as well. We're coming back quite quickly. If anything, the market's coming back faster than we can man up. But that's now starting to settle itself as well. The reason I took the job was for two reasons. A lot of people said to me when I went and tested my market, a lot of my friends were saying, you're nuts, cash is dead. And I'm like, cash isn't dead, okay? So, but a lot of people think, oh, but you know, Revolut's and all this, it's it's the end, Monzo. I think the big thing for me is if you look at the trends in the world, yes, cash usage in developed markets is slowly declining and it's very regional. The Nordics, you know, have tried to go cashless. But North America, USA, Southern Europe, Germany, still a lot of use of cash. Emerging markets, also huge still dependency on cash. Um, you know, I was in Japan a couple of weeks ago. And in Japan, people like using payment systems, but you see them withdrawing money from their bank account in an ATM and then depositing the money back onto an electronic device via another ATM. Because it's just behavioural, the comfort in cash and keeping your accounts separate and stuff like that. Um, but also, I think the biggest switch divider for me was the fact that though cash usage may be also percentage-wise not growing in Asia, the number of people travelling in Asia is growing very quickly. For that reason, cash usage around the world for international travel hasn't peaked and we're a long way away from peaking. So this belief that TravelX was going to face an existential crisis like Blockbuster or Kodak, I think is a nonsense. Actually, during the pandemic, there's research showing that there wasn't enough cash to service the requirements in, in America. People wanted to use cash more. But the reason I did join the business, given the reason why people told me not to and why I dispelled them, was the brand and the distribution. So the TravelX brand is very powerful. Um, it's the first company I've worked in for over 10 years where when I told my mother who I'm joining, she was like going, oh, I know who TravelX are. Everyone knows TravelX. 
And secondly, the distribution is amazing. 38 million customers in 2019. When I was working in fintech startups, the hardest part was acquiring customers. I mean, building the product, don't get me wrong, it's, it's not easy, but that, it's in your control. Acquiring customers is hard and expensive. And the opportunity to be able to play with a franchise which has 38 million potential touch points around the world seems very exciting. That was the reason I took the job. Very interesting. And in the six months you've been there, I mean, the two big topics I want to explore is purpose and strategy, and in particular, sort of the plumbing level. You know, if you've clarified or refined or discovered or whatever a purpose for travel x yeah so so i actually inherited a mission statement and a vision statement and i've just said it's fine it meets my needs that i don't need another one our mission is very simple it's to simplify our customers access to international money however and whenever we focus on international money that's what we do you know mm-hmm. and then our vision is to be the most recognized respected and reliable brand in international money for our customers and partners so in some ways i'm very comfortable that we're potentially a very big niche business but it's a market that's big enough to satisfy us and our competitors and build an interesting avenue over time maybe that vision and vision will change but I'm very comfortable that for now, international money, be that physical currency, be that digital international money, is all the only place we play and all we focus on. Yeah. I've asked about purpose and you understandably responded with mission and vision. For some people, when I ask about purpose, they talk about something that's much more personal And for some people, they talk about something that's much bigger and sort of more societal. Is there any of that in there for you and for TravelX? Or is it, no, we got a mission, we got a vision that's, as you said, it's good enough for me, that works, that's what we need, next topic. So in terms of societal, so look, I'm very clear here. There's two ways that you build a business successfully. You have to have happy customers and you have to have happy colleagues. That requires focusing on various aspects. It comes back down to what is your colleague proposition and what is your customer proposition. And the world is changing. So this concept of purpose, you need to start thinking about it in everything you do, how you communicate, how you talk, how you demonstrate it. Talk is easy. It's how do you walk the talk? Now, I've got to be very pragmatic in that this is a business that was in administration. So I have currently have shareholders who quite rightly are saying to me, Richard, you just need to get this business back on its feet. I'm very conscious that we as a business is very focused on that. But in order to do that, I need to engage with my customers and I need to engage with my colleagues. And to attract the best colleagues, it isn't about just paying them you know, a wage and a bonus. It's the whole thing. People want to come to work feeling like they're doing something. So when I say to simplify our customers' access to international money, however, whenever, I think I'm solving a problem for people in the market. I'm helping people travel. People find money scary. I'm probably generalizing a little bit, but most of the people that will be listening to this podcast will be maybe digital savvy, technology savvy, will be aware of the options like Revolut or Monzo, you know, will have some sort of financial literacy. A lot of people in the world don't. You know, I'll give some examples. In the UK, people don't like looking on the whole at how much money is there in their current account because they don't want to see how overdrawn they are, right? So behaviorally, 
people are almost sticking their heads in the sand, right? Um, it's the same way people bitch and moan about their bank, but they're more likely to get divorced than to move their current account. Really? That's that's a shocking number. Yeah. So, so yeah. in the UK, that's a fact. So people are very nervous about money. So there is a huge cohort of people that when they travel, they don't know what they need. The service we provide is, yeah, we are high touch and for that reason, high cost. But if you were going to talk to someone at the airport and say, look, I'm going to Brazil for seven days. A friend of mine's getting married. I've never been outside of Europe. How much money do I need? What sort of money do I need? How much do I need? That's what we're there for. Yeah, the actual transacting of money is quite easy. That, that's just the process. But our colleagues are guiding you, helping you understand how much you need. If you're worried that you're not going to have enough, we can give you more and we can give you a guarantee so that when you come back, you can exchange the amount you didn't use back at a good rate. Um, we will tell you, for instance, you're going to Brazil, you want some reals, but you know it's worth taking a couple of hundred dollars with you as well. Mm-hmm. because it's a currency that's accepted out there and it's always good to have. Now, financial literacy, a lot of people don't know that. They don't know that. And for me, you know, there is a huge amount to be done there. I'll give some other examples. And this will probably be relevant to a lot of people like me who think they're financially literate. A lot of the prepaid card solutions that were launched onto the market, such as Monzo and Revolut, have quite tight specifications on how much they can be used. You know, there's limits on how much ATM withdrawals you can do. We have research, we can see it. A lot of people use their Monzo card abroad and they withdraw 20, 30 pounds a day from an ATM. And they think they're being clever. I've got my Monzo card, I must be getting a good deal. Every time they use their card, the local bank is charging them three or four euros to take that 20, 30 quid out. So what they should do is take out a big lump straight away and pay that three or four euros once. But a lot of people don't do that. They like the fact, I can only take out a little bit, the rest is protected. And, you know, they'd be better off changing their money in one lump at the airport or at Tesco's or at Sainsbury's before they went on holiday. Sure. But the Monzos of the world don't always tell you that, yeah? And I I think... For me, that's where purpose comes in. And it's recognising that different people have different comfort, different levels of sophistication in how they deal with money. And if I can help people that are sticking their head in the sand completely, come up and give them some comfort and advice. So if I understand what you've said, you've sort of got a mission, you've kind of got a vision. It feels like you're thinking once we're on a more solid footing, maybe we need to get a little sharper about sort of what does all that mean in the bigger picture? Or have I misunderstood that? So I think it goes back to what's your definition of purpose. Mm. I'll give an example. You know, I've worked in companies that have got B Corp status, which I think is an amazing thing. I love what the B Corp thing's trying to do. Do I think that there's a bit of gamification with it? Yes, I do. But I think it's a great start and it's sending us on the right trajectory. But B Corp has to be something that works for all the constituents at a period of time. So you need to be in a business where you have long-term stability. At the moment, I'm probably not quite ready for that. You know, I've got shareholders at the moment who brought the business out of a distressed state and they are not long-term equity holders. They're not, they're not. You know, if you, if you go and look at our shareholders, so you'll see that they're not, and they won't pretend to be, you know, they, 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 they look for companies that they can help resuscitate and then they move it on to a long-term investor. But absolutely, you know, as we try to build a sustainable business, 
um, those things become much, much more important and we can start generating money to invest in them. Right. I think for colleagues, it's incredibly important. You know, people today don't come to work just to make money. They come to work to feel like they're doing something good about what they want to do. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Maybe in six months, a year, two years, when you're sort of on a more stable footing, it'd be good to kind of revisit as your shareholders change, because it sounds like you expect that to happen. I think that's a sensible expectation that some of those interests may shift and align in a different way. I think culturally, we're already trying to set the right culture now. I don't envisage my values and beliefs as a CEO are going to change because I have new shareholders. But I'm also pragmatic enough to know that I have to make this business attractive over the next two years for the next shareholders. It's, it's just a balance. Everything's a balance, yeah? And I genuinely believe if I focus on my colleagues and my customers, everything else will take care of itself. So if my colleagues come to work and feel like they're doing something worthwhile and that the business is having a good impact on them and their local society and their families and the communities they work in, great. Um, and if my customers feel like I'm trying to help them and I explain what I'm doing and I justify my actions and I'm transparent, that doesn't mean that I need to be the cheapest always. I don't believe that. But I need to be very clear what service I provide and how I'm helping them. Again, I'm very comfortable with that. And, and that's my way of purpose. It's helping people in a transparent way. A lot of people think purpose means demonstrate your green credentials, demonstrate your carbon footprint. I think all of those things are important, yeah? And everyone in the business, everyone in society has a different view of what good purpose means. And I'm very much trying to get that happy path of where I satisfy as many of my customers and colleagues as I can, but I'm not going to please all of them. I know that. I know that. But... My, my cultural, and this comes back from what's your, you know, your cultural compass, your guidance, you know, what's important to you. And like I said, satisfaction of my colleagues and satisfaction of my customers is the most important thing for me. I think customers will now choose where to shop, choose where to buy their purchases, because the companies they want to deal with are companies that share the same purpose and values that they want. So if you're successful, you're probably sustainably successful. You have to be in tune with your customers and your colleagues. And it almost takes care of itself. People will vote with their feet. You know, this belief that companies can preach to their customers, I don't think, I think customers are savvier than that. The, the, the wider world will dictate what people's values and purpose are. And you need to be in tune with them. They don't need to be in tune with you. We need to be in tune with the society. Five years ago, when I worked in asset management and, and investing, I was a bit sceptical that people were worried about the ESG balance of their portfolio. I thought, oh, you know, what people just want to make money. I was wrong. You know, I was absolutely wrong. And, and you know, someone pointed out to me at the gen last general election in the UK, over a million people voted for the Green Party. That's a lot of people. That is a lot of people, you know, and if we had proportional representation, they'd be represented. But that is your cohort of people that care about purpose, about, not the wrong word, everyone has purpose, that's unfair, but compare about the ESG sense of purpose. And that's an opportunity, you need to be listening to that. Are there things tactically we could do at Travelex to have an impact, for instance, on the environment? Yeah, there are. And to me, it's crazy at the moment that, I fly money from Australia to the UK 
to sell to people who then put the money in their pocket and then fly it back to Australia. That's crazy, but that's the way the world works today. So, you know, one of the things the team have been building is an opportunity where you can collect your money from an ATM after you've ordered it. And, you know, the dream is, is that you order the money in the UK, but you in advance, but you collect it from the ATM when you land in Australia. So you know the rate and you know what you're going to get. You've got that certainty. And yeah, in the future, should Australian money ever leave Australia? No, it shouldn't. It's nuts that it does because you can't spend it anywhere else. Um, now, that, that, in my view, is how my industry can have an impact on society, on the world, you know, that we stop flying money around the world. But that will take time and we need to change behaviours and, and see how much people are receptive to that. A lot of people have comfort from having the money before they get on the plane. At the, at the other end. Yeah, exactly. So we've got to be conscious of that. You know, my wife always asks me to get euros before we go on holiday. And I always say to my wife, but there's ATMs at every airport in Europe. Yeah, but they might not work. I'm like, would you say that if you went to Heathrow Airport, that the ATMs might not work? And don't get me wrong, it's just a comfort thing. And and everyone's different. And you need to recognise that and build your proposition and your service to recognise that how people think. Sure. I wonder if we could move on to strategy and just yeah. talk about that. You know, at one level, I kind of get the strategy is get back to where we were and get sustainable again. But is there anything more to the strategy than that? And if so, how'd you go about coming up with what that strategy was? Or like the purpose was it, it was sort of there when you got there and it was good enough. We just need to make it happen. So the big reason I took the business, the job here is because of the brand and the distribution so for me, it's all about how do I leverage that brand and that distribution? How do I utilize those assets to create more value and more recurring, long-term increased value? And I think my strategy fundamentally is at the moment, we're very transactional. Mm -hmm. How do we move that to becoming a bit more relationship focused? And it's not that we suddenly become super relationship, but it's taking steady steps. We've got plans for our strategy, which will give people a very clear idea of what we're trying to do. But the strategy thinking is quite simple. The reason why I think most businesses fail is that they don't execute or they overcomplicate. So for me, how do I build a stronger relationship with all my customers, both the retail customer, but also my business partners? That I work with? How do I create a longer term relationship value for them and for my end users? And the fact is, it's all leveraging the distribution I have already, making it stronger and trying to make it more permanent and deeper and more relationship led. I think that's what all businesses are trying to do. You know, it's all about moving from transaction to relationship. And it's hard. It's really hard transaction because, you know, my, my clients often only use me once a year. And, you know, isn't there that guy at Oracle who said, you know, ideally you want to build a product that your customer uses twice a day, like a toothbrush. That's the best product in the world. And that's really hard. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. If, if, if my customers interact with me once a year, I need to start nudging them so that at least I'm talking to them or they're hearing from me 12 times a year. And they find it valuable that they're hearing from me. So that's kind of where we're going. And using our high caliber, empathetic colleagues in stores to help guide and coach our customers. 
a lot of digital-only businesses don't have. Digital-only businesses have to do it all through the phone or the laptop or the, the computer. The business analogy that I'll use, and I've taken a lot of learning from there, is financial advice. We have the robo-advisors and we have financial advisors. And everyone's like, robo will kill the financial advisor. The fact is that in the UK, I genuinely believe 10% of people are comfortable managing their own money. 90% still want a human to help them make the big decisions. And financial advisors are going nowhere. The bar is being raised by the regulator, quite rightly. They are using technology to help them, but they're not disappearing. Most people would still want to talk to a human advisor. And not everyone is comfortable downloading an app taking a picture of themselves in their passport and, you know, doing validating KYC and then just going completely online digital. You know, a lot of people don't want to do that yet. They're not ready to do that. And I think perhaps some of the corrections we're seeing in valuations of these tech businesses are starting to recognize that, yeah? Yeah. So over the last six months or so, as you've been on this journey, what surprised you most? So Planet is three things, yeah? It's a financial services provider. It's a retail company that sells fast-moving consumer goods, just happens to be cash. But we're also a huge logistics company. We move money around the world. We're the biggest movers of banknotes around the world. And that's been a big eye-opener for me in that we can't manage our business like an FS company completely. We have to recognize we're retailers, we're shopkeepers. We have to run efficient shops that sells cash quickly, clearly, and fundamentally, we run shops. Yeah, we do run shops. And I think we're more FMCG than we are FS. When I joined, I think because of my background, and I, I did realise it, but it, it's really drawn to light to me. And I really value and think retail leaders, you know, it, it's brilliant. And, and having worked in retail banking even, there's so many people that work in banks, I think, who forget that fundamentally you're a retail organisation. You know, what you're there for. Um, FS is very important. And don't get me wrong, it's very interesting. One of the things I didn't underestimate it is, is that how the world views FX. In some markets, we're not regulated at all. In some markets, we're regulated like a bank. And the other thing is, yeah, the logistics. We have a huge logistics operation. We move money around the world, you know, tons and tons of money every day being flown around the world, held in vaults. It's all about logistics and it's all, you know, very, very well calibrated. It's logistics where you need to be really good at understanding how to move money quickly and cheaply, but also how to do it securely. And we are in effect all those three. We do all those three elements, you know, we have to think like that. And it makes it very interesting. When you started off saying we do three things, I almost was expecting three independent things, but it sounds like those three are very tightly connected. They all overlap. I think of it as a Venn diagram, very much a Venn diagram, three circles, all important, all need to be in the right balance, but you can't neglect one over the other. What have you learned along the way? I think what I've learned is you need, rather than trying to boil the ocean, do transformation, you're better off by testing lots of things in a startup-y kind of way. So doing MVPs, and then when you've proved it in a small part of your business, where you can take a little bit more risk because you're doing it at a small scale, you need then need to apply scale rollout and a bit more discipline, a lot more discipline and rigor. And it's getting that balance right. 
All the big companies I've worked at have tried to do big transformation projects, which have often been hard and failed. And I've failed delivering big transformation many times. And I'm realizing doing big transformation is not right. It's not the way to do it. You, you do it incremental and small. And I'm learning about that. that. That's a big thing for me. And I've got colleagues who are brilliant. They, they, they are excited about testing stuff all the time. And it's all about, let's test it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. But at least we learn from it. But if it does work, geez, look at the opportunity we've got to scale much faster than all these other startups, if we can get it right. And it's getting that cultural balance right. And, it, and it's reflecting on, you want people that are good at doing small stuff quick, but you want people that are good at rolling out stuff in a safe, compliant, organized manner. And getting those two cohorts of people to work well together, who view the world very differently. And, and they're both right. They're both right. And my job a little bit is to orchestrate that. Mm, mm, yeah, no, that sounds, I, I love that way of looking at it. And I think you might be on to a solution to a problem that's plagued lots of large organizations for 20 or 30 years. Yes. And I've got lots of scars. I've got loads of scars from having done it wrong in previous organizations. So. Yeah. What advice would you give to other business leaders who are grappling with this whole issue of purpose and strategy? And I'll throw transformation in there. I think, and I, I have to remind myself this, keep it simple. Be very clear what you're there to do. Be just as clear as to what you're not to do. And make sure you keep going back to check what you're doing against those two things. I have a notepad that I take with me. On my first page of my notepad, I've written down what is my mission and my vision and what are the things that I'm trying to do. And sometimes I have to go back and just check. Hang on a sec. I'm wasting time on this. I've got to keep focused. And it's a cognitive forcing my behavior. Just keep it simple. Maintain focus. Don't try to do too much. And, and then the other bit, and I learned this from the guy, actually, Greg Jackson, who set up Oxford Not learned, but he, he focused on this. Have an idea of where you're trying to get to in the long term, but don't worry about how you're going to get all the way there. Worry about just how you're going to get on the first 10% of the journey. Because whatever way you plan, it will be wrong. So his analogy was lovely. He'd say to me, Richard, imagine you're driving from London to Edinburgh and you're using Google Maps you know that if you use Google Maps, it's going to change as it sees traffic jams and crashes or something. And all you're worrying about at the moment is how you're going to get out of the North Cir- past the North Circular to the M25. Don't, don't worry about anything else. You know you want to get to Edinburgh, but don't worry about how you're going to get to Edinburgh. And there's a little bit of that's what I think I say to them is just how are we going to get going on some of our things for the next few months, next year? We know where we want to get to, but don't worry about how you're going to launch in 30 countries. Launch it in one. Start thinking about the next one. Don't worry about the other ones. Because those countries, things will have changed by the time you get around to them. Yeah. Well, and back to something you were saying before, we may decide after we've done one, we don't want to do the others. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 One was enough. Um, what haven't I asked you about that you wish I had? What haven't we touched on that we probably should? You know, my, one of my big development areas is, is that I don't take people with me. You know, I, I move too quickly and I need to consciously exaggerate it even more. And I think a lot of leaders and CEOs need to do that more. I think you have to. I don't think you can ever over-communicate the strategy. Um, there's always going to be someone who will benefit from it, I think. Well, and if nothing else, it's, it's almost like taking people back to the first page of their own notebook. Every time I talk about it, it helps me understand it a bit better as well and clarify because I'm always, you know, what's a leader's job? A leader's job is to bring certainty to a very ambiguous situation. That's your job. 
The higher up in your organisation, you need to be comfortable in ambiguity and wallow it. Your job is to make that ambiguity clearer for people more junior in your organisation who want direction. Ambiguity, I love it, but it also can be scary. And every time I help explain my strategy or my direction, it helps me understand the ambiguity a bit more, gives me that bit more comfort. So, you know, but you never nail it because things keep changing. That's probably a pretty good note to end on. Again, Richard, thank you for joining us. Really a, a great, great insight into kind of the issues you're wrestling with. Really appreciate it. Cool. No worries. Nice to do it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.